Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 199 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Resistance Fighter, an interview with Caitlin Olenek. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, I've been looking for models that are very similar to the Lyme disease experience. And in some cases, I've really thought of Lyme disease as being very much like being in a prisoner of war camp. So I started to look at people like Admiral Stockdale and Viktor Frankl, who have written about the prisoner of war experience. And then we come across a young woman who is from a long line of Jewish resistance fighters, whose family members who had fought through prisoner of war camps. And she talked about how that experience that her relatives have had was very similar to her experience with Lyme disease. If you're looking for an interview that provides you with hope and inspiration in regards to your chronic Lyme healing journey, then this is the podcast episode for you. Keelan talks to us about how she had to keep fighting and fighting and fighting until she finally found something that got her better. She also talked to us about the psychological and physical overlaps with chronic Lyme disease. So Matt, very much like being a prisoner of war, Caitlin was stripped of everything. She was stripped of support of her family, but even more importantly, she was suffering from all kinds of mental health issues that she had to battle through before she could regain her health. And Matt, I'm really excited to introduce this multi-generational resistance fighter to the Tick Bootcamp community, Kaylin Olenek and the resistance fighter. Hey, Kaylin, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. We are really excited to have you on the podcast. We've been big fans of yours for a long time, at least social media fans of yours. And I should uh, confess to our audience, we've actually become friends with you below, before we started the podcast. So this is probably going to be a friendlier and less formal podcast than we've had some others. Hopefully they will like this. So Kaylin, tell us where you're from. I'm from Orange County, California. And how long have you lived in Orange County, California? I have lived here my entire life. I was born in Huntington Beach. I was born in Newport Beach, but we lived in Huntington. And then we moved to Mission Viejo when I was two. I did go away to college for almost four years. Um, and then we lived in Missouri for a little bit. We have two houses. And then I came back here. All right. So you've largely been a West Coast gal. Correct. So talk to us about what your cultural experience was like. I mean, did you enjoy living in California? And do you enjoy living in California? I love living in California. I love the beach. I love the weather. Um, Colorado was really cold for me, especially with Lyme symptoms. It hurt my bones. So this climate is much better for me. So talk to us about what your education was like before you went to college. Uh, I went to an art school for kindergarten and preschool. Um, it's called Montessori. And that was great. I loved art, singing, dancing. Um, and then we switched over to public school for elementary school through high school. And I went to school here and uh, it was difficult for me with my symptoms, but I would like to say I enjoyed most of it. <laughs> so we're going to get to your symptoms in a minute, but uh, before we get there, why don't you talk to us about uh, what you believed you were going to be doing when you grew up, meaning when you were a little girl and you were thinking about uh, your dreams, what were you dreaming of becoming and how were you dreaming about how you would save or help the world? Uh, I wanted to be either a singer or a psychologist. And um, I, well, I studied psychology and I did voice lessons growing up and loved it. So that was how I wanted to help people. So talk to us about how you believed you'd be able to help folks first as a singer and then as a psychologist. Well, uh, through singing, I 
like to think that I'd move people and get an emotion out. And um, I was really shy when I was little. So I kind of came out of my shell when I would sing. So I don't know if there's any other little girls that I could help bring that to that would be good enough for me. So you are all about emotion, right? Using uh, your singing ability to trigger emotions for folks. And then you also wanted to study psychology so you could help folks who are having some challenges with managing their emotions. So you're all about emotions. Correct. And you believe that you'd be able to help folks in the world with both triggering positive and healthy emotions through your singing and helping people to manage the suffering that sometimes comes along with not having control of your emotions. Correct. And I also think it's important to feel the emotions rather than repress them. So I think working through them is something really important. Okay. So now let's talk about your education on the West Coast, both from your family and from your formal settings. And did you receive any information, any educational information from either your family or from your school health classes or science classes, which taught you anything about ticks? and tick diseases? Absolutely nothing. My so, family, nothing about ticks. We, I don't think we went over it in health class. If we did, it was maybe like half a day, if that. So at best, when you are searching the recesses of your memory, the only thing that you can remember is perhaps maybe having some introduction to ticks, but maybe not even that. Correct. Okay. So you certainly weren't engaging in activities like preparing for a fire drill, where if you had a tick on you, you would know how to take it off and you'd know how to treat yourself so that you wouldn't get sick. I had no knowledge. And, and you certainly had no knowledge of, uh, of what the symptoms would be of Lyme disease so that you could help yourself and your family and your doctors determine if you were sick from a tick disease. I had no knowledge from school or family or anybody. So now talk to us about when you first started to show the symptoms of what you now know to be Lyme disease. Um, growing up, I had severe knee pain and that was probably my first symptom. I also had, they would think it was asthma. I wouldn't show asthma when we would do the tests, but it would be this, I call it like an ice bucket in my chest. When I would try to run, it felt so cold and I couldn't breathe. Um, I also had severe TMJ to the point where my jaw would literally dislocate and I would get stuck with it open. So some days I would have to miss school because my jaw was stuck open. Um, and then I also had a horrible immune system. I would get sick every single year. I would miss at least a month of school every single year. So when did these symptoms first begin to present? Talk about the, 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 the arthritic pains that you're feeling in your legs, for example. When did this all start? I would say when I was about 10 years old was when it really got severe. That was probably the time that I hit late stage Lyme. Um, I would fall down at school. It was so embarrassing. I would, we would be running in recess and I would literally just, my knee would collapse and I would just fall down. Um, and, and how are these symptoms affecting you educationally and socially? Meaning I know that you're, you're an avid horseback riding gal. Uh, that's probably not the best way of describing it, but uh, excuse me for not knowing anything about equestrian uh, passions, uh, but you're also a singer and a dancer. So how was, how were these developing symptoms affecting you in all of your social and educational pursuits? 
Um, I would say I let it probably affect school more than my extracurricular activities. Those I was really passionate about. So I would just push through the pain. But when it came to school, there would just be days where I would lay in bed and I couldn't go. So you said you missed a lot of time from school. How did that impact you socially? Meaning, um, did your friends think you were, you know, the sick kid? Did you have trouble making connections because you were out of school a lot? Or did it not really affect you um, first socially? Well, I remember I was also uh, in band growing up. I, w- I played the flute. I was first chair and I would miss a month at a time. And they made up a story that I went to Guam. So everybody at school said I was in Guam (laughs) instead of being sick, which I appreciated because my parents at the time didn't really want me to talk about being sick. So were your parents taking you to doctors? When do you first remember going to doctors for these symptoms that were developing during your childhood? Probably starting at about 10 years old. I started going to knee doctors. um, And then my heart, I started having heart palpitations and racing heart. And it would be really scary. My heart would skip a beat. And so we started going to heart doctors as well and looking into like rheumatoid arthritis. And unfortunately, the doctors couldn't find anything. So they started saying that it was in my head. And my parents, unfortunately, at first believed them. And then they kind of redeemed themselves and listened to me. Okay. But let's pause there for a second. So in total, how many different doctors did you see before you were diagnosed with Lyme disease? I can't even count. Dozens. Dozens of of different medical doctors. Correct. And none of these dozens of medical doctors that your parents took you to were able to diagnose you with anything. Correct. Or I would get diagnoses like uh, I had, they thought my heart thing was rib pain, costochondritis. And then I was diagnosed with patella maltracking. Um, my kneecap would dislocate as well. And um, yeah. So Kaylin, now let's talk about how you felt when you were diagnosed with mental health symptoms rather than a physiological problem. How did that make you feel when the doctors were saying that to you? It was so frustrating because I knew it was physical pain. Um, there, my pediatrician actually referred me to her husband for psychology. <laughs> and I just thought that was so inappropriate. Um, there was one nurse in my middle school, the doctor or the, the middle school, because I was missing so much school, they referred me to their, I think she was a psychologist. And she was the first person that really believed me and told my mom to believe me and believe that it was physical pain and told me to go home and rest. And that meant the world to me. Was there ever a time when you doubted whether or not you were really physically in pain and that these were psychosomatic symptoms rather than really uh, physiological symptoms? No, because you could even see my knees would turn bright red. My hands would turn bright red. My face would turn bright red with a rash and flush. You could, if you paid attention, you could physically see the symptoms. Now you, you alluded a little bit earlier to some of the challenges you had with your parents because you said they believed the doctors who said that this was in your head and you implied that that was a problem. So talk to us about how you felt about your parents believing your doctors. Um, I felt bad talking about this because they 
eventually in the end. We're very, very supportive, but it did hurt me for probably two years. There was probably two years where they, I mean, if a doctor is telling you there's nothing there, what else are they supposed to believe? So I think they did their best, but it did hurt. So talk to us about how it hurt, meaning what were you feeling emotionally as a result of your parents believing the medical professionals who were misdiagnosing you and telling you that you had a mental health problem? Um, it felt really isolating and alone. I'm also an only child, so I didn't really have anybody else to talk to about it. And they told me, don't talk to anybody else about your symptoms. So it was very, very isolating. So now tell us about what you think um, your parents may have been able to do differently. And the reason I'm asking you this question is it's not uncommon for parents to rely on doctors and the information that they get from doctors when they're bringing their children to be treated, right? Um, you shared with us earlier that you had listened to Jennifer Hoffman's podcast, for example, and she had exactly the same pattern with her parents where mm -hmm. as a young child, she was being brought to doctors who were saying that there was nothing wrong with her. And she had some, she had some recommendations to parents when, um, when they're bringing their children to doctors and there's a conflict between what the child is saying and what parents are saying. So do you have any recommendations so that um, parents who are currently going through these challenges with their children may not make the same mistake your parents and Jennifer's parents have made? I would say just believe your children. Children are very intelligent. They're very smart. They know what's going on with their body and just believe them. But how do they tease out what their children are telling them from what doctors are telling them, right? The reason we bring our children to doctors is because we want to get a professional opinion so we can solve the challenges that they're, that they're facing. And if the professionals are telling us, hey, it's not a physical problem, don't you think parents should be looking into the possibility of an emotional challenge so that they can help their children overcome those uh, difficulties? I think it's something to look into, but I also think if a child is persistently saying something physically is wrong, I would listen. So now you want to be a psychologist. In fact, you've wanted to be a psychologist for a long time and you are somebody who loves to focus on emotions, right? You like to trigger positive emotions through singing. You like to help people who are dealing with emotions. So now let's, let's put on your psychologist hat or your future psychologist hat and let's look at these interactions that you had with psychologists as a field trip rather than as a trip to going <laughs> to see people who are diagnosing you with something you don't have. Right. What was that experience like if you're looking at it as a field trip when you're inter interacting with the different psychologists? And what was different between the psychologist who told your parents you were physically uh, suffering from um, something as opposed to the psychologists who were giving your parents different advice? I actually don't even think my parents let me see a psychologist. I think they thought it wasn't necessary. Um, so I don't think I saw a psychologist until I was much later, except for the one at my school. And I just know she had empathy. There was a difference between the other doctors. They were just lacking empathy. And I've learned from Lyme in my journey that doctors don't always know what they're talking about. They just don't. And um, I don't know, that nurse made a huge difference in my life or psychologist, school psychologist. So Kaylin, we've learned from some of the interviews we've done with some of the leading psychologists in the Lyme community that there are a lot of different types of trauma that you face when going through these challenges, right? One of the types of trauma you face is medical trauma where you are being told there's nothing wrong with you. And as a result of that, that triggers the fight or flight mode in many people. Did that happen to you? Yes, I developed um, 
pretty bad anxiety and depression at an early age. And I think it was, it had a lot to do with the medical system. And how did your anxiety and depression impact you, meaning socially and educationally? How did, how did these, uh, these uh, mental health issues uh, impact you? Um, I had trouble making new friends in school. I had trouble developing a relationship with my teachers. I was always pretty much living in that flight or fight, fight or flight mode that you described and not really living in the moment. Um, I was lucky that I had a group of friends from when I was really little and they kind of stuck with me through high school, but developing new friends was kind of difficult for me. So you talked about how these misdiagnoses were really isolating, meaning it isolated you from your parents and how it isolated you from your teachers and it isolated you from your classmates. And but for a very small group of friends, you were essentially isolated from the world because of this misdiagnosis. Correct. So talk to us about what you were able to talk to your close circle of friends with, meaning did you share with them what was going on with you and how did they support you if they did? To be honest, I kind of hid it from them when I, even when I would leave school, I wouldn't tell them what was going on. I would just say, I'd be back soon. And I kind of turn off my phone. So. So you were isolated even from your close circle of friends. You weren't even allowed to share with them what you were going through. Correct. So now let's talk about your diagnosis. When did you ultimately get diagnosed? Um. Well, I watched an episode of mystery, mystery diagnosis that I shared with you guys. And that was the first time it really clicked that all of my symptoms were related and that it was possibly Lyme disease. And so I went to my family doctor and I had, I was 12 years old at the time. I had printed out a stack of research that was probably an inch or two thick. And I said, I have 36 out of 42 symptoms can we please do a Lyme disease test and can we please treat me? And he said, okay. All right. Let's pause there for a second, right? You're 12 years old. Yes. <laughs> now, I know you, I know you're really smart and I know you're a band geek and a singer and all those <laughs> kinds of things, but um, I think that's a pretty unique experience that we have to focus on here that you are first watching a television show and talk to us about what network that was on and what the spirit of the show was first before you get to the, the episode you watched. Um, I don't remember which network it was on. This was so long ago. It just, I know it's on, it's mystery diagnosis. The episode is still on YouTube. It's filmed very badly, but it is still there. And, and what was the specific episode about? And how did you like take your notes where you came up with your description of all these symptoms? <laughs> um, her episode was about, she was honestly just like me. She went through school and started she even started losing the loss of her legs, uh, losing the use of her legs, excuse me. And um, she had the same kind of things where her fingers would get mangled and really red. And um, I don't know, just the story was so similar. She actually met another girl abroad who had Lyme disease and that was how she got her diagnosis. And um, I went to let's see, there was an, a website called Can Lyme. I think it was Canada Lyme disease. And they had a complete checklist of symptoms. And I think I checked off 36 out of 42. I remember those numbers. And um, I also 
realized that the testing wasn't very accurate at the time. So I printed out even those, um, even the research saying that the testing wasn't very accurate. I was just begging my doctor to treat me. And at this point, my parents were completely supportive and were telling the doctor to do the same. Okay. So after you watch the episode um, on television, that that causes you to pivot over to CanLime. How did you find CanLime from that episode? Was that part of what was profiled in the episode of television or was Geeky Caitlin just doing her own research? Geeky Caitlin was just doing her own research. That was one of the, it was one of the first websites that popped up when you typed in Lyme disease back then. So now when you, when you did your research and you came up with your outline of what the traditional symptoms are versus what symptoms you had, I'm assuming you then went to your parents and you were able to feel some sense of validation first personally, and then helping you to reconnect with your parents so that they could have faith in what you were telling them as opposed to what the doctors are telling them. Correct. And they also watched the episode with me and that I think triggered in them, you know, what she's right. And there probably is something here. And of course, now coming full circle, that's why it's so important for people like you, Caitlin, to share your story, right? Because there are other people out there who are suffering from what you had suffered, where you had family members who are not believing them and they're having a lot of the challenges that you're having, but their families are not believing them. That's why these stories are so important so that we can help validate other people's experiences. So again, I want to thank you for being so brave and coming onto this podcast and sharing the story with us, especially this piece about your parents and those challenges, because I know you didn't want to talk about that. So let's, let's take the next step. So you and your parents now go to the doctor and you're now armed with your research and 12 year old Caitlin walks in and she sees her doctor and she says, doctor, I've done my research. I believe that I have Lyme disease. I understand that testing is not all that good in this arena, but we have to figure this out together. What was the doctor's reaction to the little 12 year old Caitlin coming in with all of this research? I think he kind of laughed at first and then just because I was such a force of nature. And then he started looking at his computer and said, yeah, these are the symptoms and we can run that test. And uh, the treatment for it at the time was oral doxycycline. Okay. So you now have this new relationship with your doctor, right? Rather than your doctor essentially being somebody who you worship or somebody who you now listen to, you now at 12 years old become a partner with your doctor and you send your doctor over to his computer to validate (laughs) the research you've done and enhance his education so he can now have a healthy partnership with you in determining whether or not you have Lyme disease or not. Correct. And the doctor was now open to your, your request that you, um, that you take Lyme disease tests. Correct. And what testing did you and the doctor do together? I can't remember what test it was. I can't remember if it was the Western blot or it was so long ago. I can't remember, but I do remember my test results were inconclusive. It said that I possibly have Lyme disease. But that was enough of a yes for us and enough of a yes for the doctor to go ahead and say, we can treat with oral antibiotics and see if you get better. So, Caitlin, I, I have to tell you that I'm picturing a 12-year-old Caitlin walking into a doctor's office armed with more information than probably her doctor had as ever learned about Lyme disease and basically self-diagnosing yourself as, well, as a 12-year-old. And we've never heard that in this podcast before. So that's, that's just a really cool scene to, to picture. But <laughs> as a follow-up to that... Talk to us more, Caitlin, about 
once you got the test back, it was inconclusive. Thankfully, from your research and your doctor now, sounds like he did some research as well, decided to treat because you understood the tests weren't great. How long were you on oral doxycycline for as a 12-year-old? I think uh, we did one month and my symptoms completely went away when I had the treatment. And then when we stopped, it came back. So I think we did a second round. I'm pretty sure it was two months. So I'm curious, the first month you went on the antibiotics, you stopped after a month in, did you get full symptom relief within that one month window? And then when you stopped the antibiotics, they, they came back? Correct. And when you took the antibiotics again, how quickly did it take for your symptoms to dissipate after restarting the antibiotics in the second month? A few days. So now you're two months in, you stopped the antibiotics and your symptoms are gone. Do they, do they stay away for quite a while at this point? Uh, for the most part, I would still have kind of flare. My immune system was always garbage. I would, I never, that was never fixed. So I would still get sick every year, probably around December. Um, and I still had some knee pain. I still had some brain fog. I still had the social anxiety and, um, but compared to the amount of pain I was in as a 10 year old and a 12 year old, it was world's better. So talk just a little more specifically about the pain. Where was the pain that you had that had improved because of the antibiotics? Um, I had severe migraines. I think those got better. I still would get migraines once in a while, but I had headaches. I honestly had full body joint pain and it was alleviated. So how long did this symptom really flash for? I mean, now you're a 12 year old child. When did Lyme come back into the picture as being a possible root cause of your lingering symptoms and maybe now newly emerging symptoms? Um, it wasn't until after college um, that I was starting to get sick and sicker and sicker. And eventually I revisited the idea that my Lyme was back. So I want to ask Caitlin, because a lot of people reach out to us on a regular basis and say, I got treatment for Lyme. I got a lot better, but not fully better. And I'm not sure if I should do anything else to continue to treat, whether it's alternative or Western, whatever it may be. Looking back, do you think that there were signs that maybe you could have picked up on that would have allowed you to say, hey, I really should treat this more before it popped up and came back when you were in your you know, early 20s? Absolutely. The continued knee pain, the brain fog, the rashes that I would get, the chemical sensitivities. Um, I was still falling downstairs at high school. That was humiliating. Um, with my knees giving out, I also would get tired. I haven't mentioned the fatigue yet. The fatigue was awful. Um, I was a cheerleader in high school as well. And I just remember I would sleep before practicing games and, um, I don't know how I made it through. I really just, instead of being social, like my friends would get to go hang out with friends and do other activities. In between my activities, I was always resting. You know, talk to us more about, you mentioned that you would fall down the stairs. So I know Lyme has, and for me personally as well, it has caused me to have severe balance issues. And that was one of the first signs that I had where I was on, on a driveway at a garage sale. I'm, I'm a very big into finding deals. And 
I was starting to lose my balance a little bit and it was a sensation I never felt before. So can you describe for listeners how that was like for you so they can have an insight into if they're experiencing a similar situation that could be Lyme related dizziness and balance issues? I think for me, it was more my knees were giving out. I would walk and my knee would just give out and it would like, I would like almost fall down more than the balance issue. I know I had, I visited one doctor, I forget what he did, but he had me close my eyes and stand up and he said, it looks like you're swaying in the wind. So uh, I did have some balance issues and I was a dancer. So balance is really important. Um, I did notice where I would kind of fall over when I would have to stand on one leg or something like that. But I think the falling down the stairs was really related to my knee issues. And what were your doctors or were you going to the doctors from the time you were 12 and had your full two month treatment up until the time you were about 23 when you had your resurgence? What, what were your doctors saying about your residual symptoms, your, your knee pain, your fatigue, your chemical sensitivities? Were they just dismissing it as being a child? You know, what was the response to all that? Um, I would have different doctors who would diagnose me with different things. Um, with the knees, it was patella maltracking. So I did physical therapy for that. It didn't really help. Um, I think for the fatigue, um, I did get mono in high school. So that kind of explained that as far as the doctors were concerned. Um, and the rest, they kind of just dismissed and said, you're young, you're pretty, you know, what do you have to complain about? <laughs> it, it always amazes me how hard doctors will break their neck to look the other way when they can't figure out what's wrong and they'll dismiss it to something that they know probably is not the real root cause of that particular symptom or condition. So Kaylin, talk to us more about, I wanna learn more about the chemical sensitivities. That's a really important topic with tick-borne illnesses and Lyme disease. And we don't really talk about that enough. So um, we had interviewed Brooke Stoddard, who's the co-founder of, of Generation Lime, and he talked to us about his severe chemical sensitivities and how it would trigger symptoms. So how did those play in in your, your health when you were a child? Um, I would just give these, unex well, I want to say unexplained, but it was from the chemicals, these rashes that would cover my body um, from different detergents. Um, I, there was a while where I got so sensitive, I couldn't even walk down the laundry detergent aisle. It would affect even how I would walk. So really your symptoms that you experience on a regular basis would become amplified as a result of chemical sensitivities. Correct. And you're anything from laundry detergent to shampoo to perfume, things like that, essentially. Absolutely. Yes. Did you have any food sensitivities or food odor sensitivities? Um, after college, I became allergic to almonds and pine nuts. Um, now after my stem cells, I'm not allergic to them anymore, which is kind of amazing. Oh, and we're going to get there and I can't wait to explore the stem cells with yeah. you in a, in a little bit. So is there anything else no noteworthy about your health as far as things that could have been a clue into Lyme disease remaining that you want to share with our audience before we go on to your, your resurgence at 23? Um, no, we went over the fatigue, the migraines, the TMJ was so severe. <laughs> I also had to wear this brig brace in college. It was clear. And I remember my roommate laughed in my face. And after that, I never wore it in public. <laughs> yeah, I think we've covered everything. All right. So talk to us about when you're 23, were there any 
life stressors? Was there any sort of influence going on in your life that you feel could have triggered the Lyme to sort of take over as a result of an immune compromising event in your life? Absolutely. My grandmother passed away and then I had a week in between and then my uncle passed away. And right after my grandma passed away, uh, the day after her funeral, my ex of three and a half years broke up with me. And that I think triggered. I also was really stressed from school. Um, and I lived in a house with mold in Colorado. We had a flood and you could literally see the mold going up the wall. We lived in a basement apartment and we even got it tested for mold. And she said, yes, there's a mild mold, but it's none of the spores that can really make you sick. And I remember saying that I have Lyme disease and Lyme disease and mold is really dangerous combination. So we did a dehumidifier. And I remember I would put bleach on the wall, which couldn't have been good for me either to be breathing in that bleach to try to kill the mold. So there were a lot of stressors. So Kaylin, for anybody listening, I think you know her now as well, Michelle McKeon from um, Lyme and Cancer Services, who's also a big advocate and participant of Generation Lyme. She is, a, is our, we've labeled her the mold queen as of last Saturday, as you know. So anybody listening is interested in learning more about mold, they should really check out Lyme and Cancer Services or Michelle McKeon was really one of the leading experts in mold and Lyme disease out there in the community. But what I'm, what I'm interested to learn about is, uh, well, before I get there, when you started having this decline and all these life stressors occurred, were you still in college or were you, were you graduated from college at this point? Um, I was still in college. I, with the moldy apartment, that was my junior year. And then with the stressors, my grandma dying, my uncle dying, and my boyfriend breaking up with me, I was in my senior year, um, and I actually had to withdraw two weeks before finals of the first semester of my senior year of college. So, Kaylin, talk to us more about how your health started to decline, starting with the first event, which was living in a moldy environment in, in your apartment at college. I started getting the most severe panic attacks to the point where I thought I was dying, Um, And my heart would just race and skip beats and it would actually hurt. And I was diagnosed with panic attacks and um, they also diagnosed me with depression and put me on Prozac to try and fix that. At any point throughout your health, from the time you were treated with the two month antibiotics when you were 12, up until this point now, when you're a junior in college and you're living in this moldy environment, having severe anxiety, did Lyme ever get brought back up by you or any of your doctors as a topic of discussion? I did bring it back up when I was in the moldy uh, apartment or it was a house. And what was the response to, to that statement that you brought up when you said, Hey, look, I have Lyme disease and now I'm in a moldy environment. Did they dismiss it? Did they, did they, were they open to the idea of mold and Lyme possibly causing a severe setback in your health? I wasn't bringing it up to doctors yet. Um, I just brought it up to my landlord and she was like, you can't get out of your contract. You're stuck. You're either going to have to pay for this and another place or just live with it. So now you, what you mentioned, you went on to your senior year and that's when everything happened with your first, your grandma, then your ex breaks up with you shortly after. And then you had your uncle pass away about three weeks after that. So what symptoms started to pop up even more at this time when you had these real emotional stressors, which obviously, you know, lessened your immune system or weakened your immune system and caused you to get even sicker from Lyme disease. 
um, my fatigue was back. I would have to sleep in between classes, even if it was just for 10 minutes. And I started getting really forgetful. I remember um, we had a project that was worth 20% of our grade and my roommates were in the same class with me and they walked down the stairs and they had these big packets in their hand. And I said, what is that? And they said, that's our project. And I went, oh crap. I completely forgot about a project. I also started failing my tests and I was an A student the year before at a 4.0. So it didn't make any sense. And I just realized I couldn't do school anymore, at least at the time. So you cognitively had this complete 180 and you started to get even sicker than you were previously. What were your friends and family saying to you? And were they, were they urging you to go to seek medical advice from, from your practitioners? Uh, at the time, it was more psychological. They thought it was me being stressed. And uh, I was put on clonopin for anxiety attacks. Um, sorry about the phone. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, and then I think I did see another doctor and I brought up my Lyme. At the time, she was a woman's doctor. She kind of did like I can't remember exactly what she was, but she didn't think that was what was going on. It was, again, kind of reduced to the psychological thing at that so, point. So do you, it just seems so mind blowing to me that you had classic symptoms of Lyme disease. You had mold exposure, all of, all of these things stacking up, but they kept dismissing it to being a mental health problem. So what factors yeah. do you think contributed to that, that they didn't even want to hear it? I mean, obviously we've heard gender be an issue. We've heard age be an issue. We've heard appearance be an issue, right? So you're saying you were young, you were, you know, you, you, you're, you're very pretty and, and you're a female. So do you think all those things together sort of stacked up and, and caused these doctors to not even really process or consider what you were going through? Absolutely. So looking back, what advice would you give our listeners who are in that same boat and struggling to be heard and listened to that you think you could have possibly done differently to be heard by your doctors earlier on about Lyme disease? Um, I would say find an LLMD, a Lyme literate medical doctor, and don't stop until you find somebody that hears you. Because for me, I kind of let, I listened and I thought, you know, maybe it is just in my head. And, and I and, wish, <laughs> but but again, you know, I think rightfully so because you're being told by everybody, various medical professionals, your family, and you're experiencing these out of the norm psychological issues. So of course you're going to start to doubt yourself. Am I really sick? But again, the Caitlin spirit, just like the twelve-year-old who self-diagnosed herself, you kept fighting, obviously, and you got to a a Lyme doctor, and we're, we're about to get there. But talk just more about the time when you had to pull out of school because you were so sick in your senior year of college and then how your health continued to decline and what doctors you were seeing at that point? Um, well, for a while after I pulled out of school, I went to live with my parents in Missouri. Uh, we have farms in Missouri and Arkansas and my parents were living there trying to get everything switched over into our name because there was no will. It was a mess. Um, and I remember I was just sleep all the time and um, throughout my life, I've also gained weight with no explanation. I've always eaten like 1200 calories and worked out and I've always kind of struggled with my weight. And I remember gaining weight at that point too. And then 
I came home to live in our house in California by myself. And I kind of, I would kind of be up and down where I would go jump horses and be going to my voice lessons and doing um, coffee houses and singing. And then I would just crash and I would sleep for a few days and then I'd get up and do it all over again. And um, I don't think I was seeing doctors at that point. I was seeing my family doctor. He uh, eventually retired and then passed it on to his children. So I would still go and see my family doctor. And that was how I was getting my psych meds at the time. <laughs> I should have seen a psychologist, but I didn't. Um, a psychiatrist. And it took me until I got, I think I told you about this, but I ended up having symptoms where I was, it's gross, but throwing up bile and so sick. I was in bed, just in excruciating pain. And they thought I had hepatitis B and, uh, the same doctor that diagnosed me with Lyme disease when I was 12 diagnosed the hep B. And I just remember being like, I don't think this is hepatitis. <laughs> um, and I, that was when I started thinking, okay, this might be Lyme again. And that was when I started looking for a Lyme literate doctor. So Kaylin, talk to us more about the psychological medication that you prescribe, because I think, I think there's pros and cons and in each case, it's different for every Lyme patient. But you mentioned that you prescribe Clonopin and Prozac before you finally got your chronic Lyme diagnosis at, at your, your mid to late, uh, mid to early twenties. So do you believe that the psychological medication actually, you know, the Clonopin and the Prozac actually helped you feel better but also resulted in other side effects that further complicated your diagnosis? I think, um, I think it did help me psychologically because the panic attack stopped. Um, I don't like being reliant on clonopin. I would try not to take it, but when I would have a panic attack, I would need to take it. Um, I think it probably prolonged me from looking into the Lyme though. And that probably allowed me to get to the point of how sick I was. So there's pros and cons. So looking back, and this is probably a really difficult question to ask do you, if you could do it all over again, would you have taken the Clonopin and the Prozac to help alleviate a lot of your symptoms that were a result of Lyme? Or do you think that you would have, you would have not taken those medications and then fought harder for diagnosis sooner? I think I would have taken them because at the time I was so desperate I was ending up in the ER with panic attacks thinking I was dying. So, and I was at the point where I was literally running out of my college classrooms, grabbing my heart, thinking I was having like a heart attack. So I did the best I could at the time. And I think even if I had realized, oh, I think this is Lyme, I think I would have needed to be on the psych meds as well anyway. I this is a whole thing. So this is a whole other world, Caitlin, where we've heard from a lot of people in, in the Lyme community, like Dr. Leo Shea, who is a neuropsychologist who specializes in tick-borne illness, that all mental health-related illness has a root cause, whether it's from a bacteria or a virus or some type of pathogen. So we, Rich and I often wonder how many people are out there suffering from psychological issues and Lyme and tick-borne illness could possibly be the, the root cause because that's really how you started off and you were misdiagnosed for so long. So do you think that there are a lot of undiagnosed Lyme and tick-borne illness patients out there that are just labeled as, as being crazy or having anxiety or being depressed or having psychological-based conditions when really it's just a label and really a consequence or a side effect of, of a tick-borne illness? 
I'm sure there are tons and that's devastating. So let's go back to your, your, your symptom progression. So you mentioned the, the, the real trigger for you that caused you to think about Lyme again was when you started to throw up this bile. And I know it's, it's really not pleasant to speak about, but I think it's important to talk about that because we've never had somebody tell us they've had that with Lyme disease. So why do you believe if you have any thought on this, that you were throwing a bile because of, of your illness? You know, what do you think caused that or triggered that in your body? Well, I think even if it was hepatitis B, I think the only way I would, would have caught that is if the Lyme was affecting my immune system. So I, that event just triggered me to look back and kind of put the pieces together. Like I did when I was 12 thinking, you know what, these symptoms are, can't be unrelated. So it was just a turning point for me. So once you realize that I, this, this is all from Lyme again, and your doctor who helped you in the beginning, back when you were 12 with Lyme was telling you this is hepatitis, what steps did you take to now bring Lyme back on the table and get a chronic Lyme diagnosis? I called my parents and once again, they didn't believe me. They thought somebody on Instagram was brainwashing me. So that was, that really frustrated me. I just ignored them. And I called Sophia Health Clinic in Washington. Um, I think they're in Washington. And they, I explained my symptoms and they said, yes, this is really common. And just all my symptoms, not just the happy, <laughs> um, and I, I can't remember who someone suggested this website that sends a database of doctors that are in your area because Sophia Health Clinic was far away and it generated three names. And um, I looked into each of those doctors and ended up picking one. And I met, I actually met another girl on Instagram that had gone to one of those doctors and she was my top pick. So it just kind of everything kind of aligned and I went to see her. And I think that's when my parents finally started listening to me. When I told them how sick I was, they flew home and we all went to that doctor together. So if anybody's listening and wants to learn more about finding a Lyme litter specialist near them, I know there's a couple of other resources out there like ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society and LymeDisease.org who have these provider searches on their, on their website where you can go and put in your, your address and it'll spit out a whole bunch of Lyme litter specialists that are near you and even some that potentially are virtual that can see you virtually uh, as well. So I think that's a really important resource, Caitlin, that you would, again, stumbled upon on your own and from your own research, you just kept fighting despite your parents telling you that you've been brainwashed and despite your doctor telling you you have hepatitis, you just kept fighting. But what symptoms that, did you describe to your parents that finally got them to realize you were so sick? As you said, when they realized how sick I was, they came and flew to me to see me. So what were those symptoms that scared your parents enough to take it seriously to come and see you and go to the doctor with you? Um, I told them that I was crashing after like my horseback riding lessons that I would sleep for three days. And also that bout of hepatitis or whatever it was uh, scared them. I also, I happened to have somebody break not break into, but so, or saw off a part of my car and I slept through it when I had the hepatitis. And so my car is missing, uh, on BMWs, there's a track that runs across the top. It's, I think at least worth $500 and then another 2000 to paint it. And they stole that off my car. And I remember hearing it, but I just rolled over and went to sleep anyway, because I was that sick. And my parents hearing that story, they were like, okay, you're, something's wrong. <laughs> I, 
I also was living here by myself. So I was taking the garbage cans out and I was so weak. The garbage can knocked me over and I fell down and with the garbage can on top of me. That's how weak I was. So a lot of people find it hard to believe that you can be so cognitively impaired, especially somebody like you, Caitlin, who's so well-spoken right now. So tell us, give us an example of something or, you know, an interaction you have with somebody where you couldn't even get a sentence out, right? Because it's, when, when we talk about this, I don't think people can truly understand how we can go from a normal functioning person to a person who is basically a shell of who we were and we can't communicate. So can you provide an example of that so our listeners have some perspective to how sick you really were? Um, not being able to get a sentence out. I eventually, there would be times where I would try to talk and it would just be silence. Um, and it would be like two minutes and it would take me that long to be able to get the words. And I remember just like going through a drive-through or something, they would get so frustrated with me. Um, I would just say, hold on. And I would take that long to think about it and then finally get the words out. Also with the cognitive, I remember I couldn't remember if I handed them my credit card or not to pay for something. And I would have to ask them and just listen to them and believe them. So Caitlin, I just want to congratulate you because we're going to get to the point of where you are now, but hearing where you were and putting that in perspective, you would take two minutes to order your food at a restaurant. Here we are asking you very difficult questions that are emotional that occurred, you know, almost 10 years ago in some cases, and you're responding very quickly and in a very, in a very good, clear way. So I think that's a really positive uh, point here in, in your healing journey. That's maybe inspirational for a lot of people listening to this. So Talk to us more about the doctor you went to. So if you're comfortable sharing the doctor's name that you found as a Lyme specialist on the website and what that visit was like with you and your parents when you finally went to go see that Lyme specialist. She wants me to keep her name private. Otherwise, I would love to share. Um, but I'll just call her <laughs> my Lyme literate medical doctor. Um, she's here in Orange County. Sorry, what was your other question? Her name and Yep. And then also what that experience was like. So what the visit was like for you and your parents to go visit with this Lyme specialist. Oh, I just remembered she talked with us for over an hour. She went over all of my symptoms and listened to the entire story. And that was the first time a doctor had done that for me. And I just remember thinking, this is right. This is it. So Caitlin, talk to us about the takeaway. So when you were done with this doctor's visit, were you going and getting blood work drawn for tick-borne disease testing? Did, did you walk away with a clinical diagnosis of anything? And what, was the, what were your action items after this appointment? I remember she uh, gave me <laughs> so many blood tests. It had to be on two different pieces of paper. And I think it was 22 vials of blood. And I hate having my blood drawn. So I remember being like, I must really think that I'm sick to be able to go and follow through with what she's asking me to do. She also, I think at the time, um, thought I might have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome because of the dislocating joints um, and some of my other symptoms. All of her tests, well, not all of them, but a lot of the tests for the tick-borne illnesses, they all came back negative. So she also thought that maybe it was EDS, um, but it wasn't until I developed more Jalen's that she really went, okay, I think you have Lyme. So Caitlin, do you, did you ever test positive for EDS or is that, is that something that came back negative and you never pursued it again? I'm not even sure we tested it. 
Can you test for EDS? I didn't even. You know, I think there's a genetic test out there. I'm pretty sure, uh, but I, I honestly am not 100 certain. So, was it was that a clinical diagnosis you received for EDS? Was I'm not sure. It was an observation. I'm not sure if she ever officially diagnosed me with it. She just, it was something that was in the back of her head. Yeah, so we've seen a lot of overlap, and I know we've talked about this offline with you between EDS or Ehlers Danlos Syndrome and Lyme disease. And after having this topic brought up by a couple of other podcast guests, Rich and I have done some research, and it's it's really this genetic disease that really sets you up to develop chronic Lyme because A, it actually weakens your immune system, and B, it causes the collagen in your joints to become genetically modified and weaker, essentially. So when your immune system is weaker, you're set up for, for your chronic Lyme to take over more likely than a healthier person. And when, you're, when your joints and your collagen isn't as strong, that's what Lyme eats. So it becomes even more painful and more problematic for a chronic Lyme patient. So do you think that your situation was so severe because of these two overlapping conditions that you were experiencing? It's very possible. And again, I don't, I don't think I'm diagnosed with EDS. I'm, I would have to go back and look, but I do have some of the symptoms with the dislocating joints. I remember I was in a swimming pool or we have a swimming pool and I dove to the bottom after growing one summer, I didn't realize I was taller. So I hit my wrist on the bottom and it popped out of the joint. And then by the time I got back to the doctor, uh, the wrist doctor, it had popped back in. So I, I do have symptoms of it. So it's quite interesting because we've discussed this with other people on, on Lyme groups and other podcast guests. And every time we talk about it, a lot of these people we speak with are saying, wow, I've had a lot of joint issues or I've been super, super flexible in a way that nobody else was, which yeah, are all was, signs of EDS. Yeah. And with dance, I was the most flexible in my class. I could put my foot like behind my ear. I would do the splits and then it wasn't enough. So my dance teacher would grab mats and put that under my front leg. So I was doing more than just this kind of split. It was even more flexible than a normal split. <laughs> so for those listening, Rich uh, did just research and confirm that there, there is a genetic test out there for EDS. If anybody's interested, I think they may have it as well. And there is that sort of amplifying problem where if you do develop chronic Lyme, which could be because of the weakened immune system, the Lyme symptoms are going to be even worse because of the collagen disorder or the connective tissue disorder, which is EDS. So Caitlin, talk to us more now. So you walked away, all of, you, all of your Lyme testing was negative. Did your Correct. doctor still give you a clinical diagnosis of Lyme because they were Lyme woke as we like to call them and, and treat you or what happened next? At the time she, I remember she said no Lyme disease and I went, yeah, right. And she said, but I still want to treat you. And she didn't, she didn't at the time, she didn't say what it was for. She, she oh, we also tested my um, immunoglobulin and I was low in IgG and IgA. So I had an immune system issue as well. So she put me on IV saline and IV glutathione to start, to just start detoxing my body and getting used to that. I think I did that for six months to a year before we started with anything else. So Kaylin, talk to us about the use of the IV saline and glutathione. What purpose does IV saline have in helping your, your weakened immune system? Um, she just wanted to flush the toxins out of my body. I also had POTS, so it brought up, it lowers your heart rate. I don't know exactly how it works. But it helped my heart. And also talk to us about the glutathione, because we know glutathione is really, really powerful 
potentially now with COVID and also for the chronic Lyme community in helping alleviate a lot of their symptoms and inflammation. So what role do you believe glutathione had in your healing journey? I think it started detoxing me. And that was when I started developing the skin lesions for Lyme, or that was the Morgellons, I guess. So it's, it's not uncommon when you start to detox and treat some of these pathogens for you to start to develop an active infection again. And that sounds like what, that's what happened for you is that it started to become active and you start to exhibit symptoms of, of all of your last decades worth of, of conditions. Correct. I think that's what happened as well. So you did that for about a year, which is probably a good first step because you wanted to really help your immune system, reduce inflammation and get your body ready for additional treatment. So after that year was up, what follow-up treatments did you get? And again, did Lyme ever come back in as being a positive diagnosis? And, you know, where did that come into the whole big picture? My doctor just kind of watched me and eventually she started putting Lyme back into the conversation. I can't give you a specific date or time, but it did start coming up again. Um, we also started me then trying to get approved for IVIG, which is a nightmare. Um, and then eventually I think it took, it took months to get approved, which was so frustrating and devastating because my IgG and IgA levels were low enough to get approved, but for some reason they just wouldn't approve it. Um, and which is really common and people get really sick because of it, because of having to wait. So unfortunately, you're not the first person to talk to us about having issues getting IgG approved through your insurance. In fact, Ali Maresco has been very vocal about this on her social media, uh, about initially getting approval for her IgG and then also continuing care for IG, for IG, um, IVIG, I'm sorry, I said IgG, for IVIG. <laughs> so what, what, can you talk to our listeners about what exactly is IVIG and how is it helpful in treating, you know, an immune compromised person and also treating tick-borne illnesses? Oh, geez. It's been a while since I've done it. Um, I think they resupplied the IgG and IgA. It's, I think, from a donor. And it's an infusion that takes, gosh, I think my infusions took seven hours. I would have a nurse come out and I would just lay in bed and she would infuse me and watch me to make sure I didn't have a reaction. That's also when I went on prednisone, a steroid, which can also fuel the Lyme. So I was put on prednisone to not have a reaction to the IVIG. Did your Lyme specialist at this point realize that Lyme was back on the table and give you the steroids because you felt it was a necessary evil to combat the inflammation or, or resulting response to the IVIG? Correct. She knew the rest. And from your standpoint, looking back, do you think that you gained health benefits from the IVIG despite the negative effects of the steroids? And that's, is that something that you would do again? Um, hmm. at the time it helped for a while. And then I got a bad batch that gave me a horrible reaction. I think it made my brain swell and I was just hysterical in the bathtub crying. And I would have these, I'm not sure if they were seizures, but like episodes where I would kind of shake and convulse and I had no control over my legs. Um, and that happened after the bad batch of IVAG. I was really scared of it after that. I think we did a few more infusions and I was like, this isn't helping me. I remember my brain felt like it was swelling as well. After every single infusion, I would get these horrible headaches. My eyes would look swollen. I was sensitive to light, to sound. Um, 
there was a point where my mom couldn't even talk in the room. I would like make her write it down on a piece of paper because I was that sensitive. And I think the IBIG was kind of flaring that for me. It just wasn't a match. So in your specific case, and obviously it's different for everybody, but you feel that it really didn't help you. In fact, it made you a little bit worse, it sounds like. Yeah, it did. But how long were you on IVIG for? uh, Maybe six months. And I'm sorry, I think I interrupted you. You were going to say, but you think, and, and I had interrupted. I think it was something that I had to try, just part of my journey. So now that you had this response and you weren't doing much better, what did your Lyme specialist do next to help you in your healing journey? Um, well, I was getting these lesions up and down my spine, on my face, on my legs, and also the fibers that come along with Morgellons. And there's research that Lyme and Morgellons are tied together. And that if you look at Morgellons under a microscope, it actually has a Lyme spirochete in it. And... Um, my doctor actually believed in Morgellons and she thought the next step would be to treat me with IV antibiotics. You know what IV antibiotics you were prescribed? I was on IV doxycycline, IV dapto, daptomycin, which is like a little egg. <laughs> and then I can't remember the third. It might've been rifampin. So those are very good at treating chronic Lyme and tick-borne illnesses as well. So did you see any positive health gains as a result of the IV antibiotics? To be honest, this is when I also started developing psychological symptoms. I started getting really paranoid and having delusions and I was not really in tune with reality. So at the, it's really, my memory is not good from this part of my journey. I don't think we saw any improvement after I did the IV antibiotics, to be honest. So Kellen, I wonder, you mentioned that you started to get worse from the IVIG, and it sounds like from what you're describing, a lot of your symptoms are all inflammation-based, which generally are an immune response or an autoimmune-based reaction, right? So you, you were having this autoimmune flare, and then you treated with aggressive IV antibiotics, three of them. Do you think that that was just too much for your body to handle? And then because of the, the result of the antibiotics and the die-off and the increase inflammation that that put you into the spiral and possibly cause some of your psychological issues. Yes, it's very possible. So, you know, it's, it's a hard discussion and you don't have to answer if you're not comfortable with this question, but a lot of people often wonder, did I really, you know, do, did I have a psychological issue? Possibly it, do, do I have schizophrenia or some sort of mental health condition, or was it really just a result of brain inflammation due to die-off or due to treatment or due to brain inflammation, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that neurological Lyme disease and tick-borne illness can result in such severe inflammation that it results in these these severe neurological conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar, things like that? I absolutely think that Lyme disease and inflammation can cause those. I also had a leak in my roof right next to my room. So it's very possible that there was also mold in that bedroom. So it was just kind of the perfect storm. So you, so you truly had the perfect storm of, of conditions in your life that, that brought on all this, this, these events to occur. So do you recall, I know it was a very fuzzy period in your healing journey, but do you recall about how long you were on the IV, IV antibiotics for? I think three months. And as you continued to decline, what was your Lyme doctor now thinking your next steps were going to be? Uh, that's when we turned to stem cells. 
So talk to us about stem cells. We've had a few guests in the past utilize them. Some have gone to, to the Infusio Clinic in Germany. Some have gone to the now closed Infusio Clinic, I believe in California. Uh, some have gone to Mexico. So where did you go to get these stem cells? And why do you think that your Lyme doctor pivoted to stem cells after everything you've gone through? And nothing was helping. And I was completely bedridden at this point. And I was sensitive to sound, to light, to, I couldn't have any visitors. Also my immune system was so bad. I was off the IVIG at that point that we couldn't risk any infection. Um, and she, she had been looking and researching stem cells for a very long time, but she didn't, she didn't want me going to Germany. She thought it was dangerous. Um, I think in Germany, they also do sheep stem cells and she wanted me to have human stem cells. So she waited a very long time until this one company, and I believe they're called Livion, L-I-V-E-Y-O-N. They finally approved stem cells and she said this, I would be comfortable giving you and trying. So if you can, I know this, this may be a more detailed question, but We've heard a lot about, you mentioned sheep stem cells, which your doctor wanted to use human stem cells. We just got a DM today about the use of potentially shark stem cells. So why are certain stem cells better than others to treat Lyme? And why did your doctor want to utilize human stem cells versus potentially sheep stem cells or shark stem cells? She said, we have no idea what the effects of animal stem cells are in the long run. Um, She didn't want me picking up any other diseases as well. And you never know what you're getting with animals. So with the human stem cells, I believe there are different types of human stem cells. So was there a specific type of stem cell that you got that your doctor felt would be the most appropriate for you? Yes, I believe they're cord cells from a baby, like a donation of cord cells. I'm sorry, you said umbilical cords? Yes. So Caitlin, talk to us what this was like, right? I'm just so curious. So where, I guess, where did you go to get the stem cells? I went to the same LLMD to um, an infusion in her office. And again, we did prednisone before to prevent a big flare up. And that also caused weight gain, which is not fun. And I'm still dealing with that. But let's talk more about the prednisone and, and using that as a precursor to these treatments. Did your Lyme specialist believe that the stem cells would generate histamines and inflammation, and therefore it's critical to use steroids to help you curb that side effect, which you knew you were so reactive to. Correct. And in your opinion, looking back, do you feel that stem cells were a worthwhile effort given you had such a reaction to inflammation and histamines in your body? It completely saved my life. So yes. So I'm really curious to hear the first injection or fusion you got of stem cells what was your immediate response, if any, to that infusion? Um, well, it wasn't immediate. This was when I had my episode of psychosis was a month after the stem cells. So the way I noticed I was better was I was brought to the hospital, um, for an episode of psychosis and, um, they wouldn't let me just lay in bed. I had to go to get up and walk to eat the meals to go to these activities. And I realized the stem cells were working because I was able to do that. And previously you wouldn't be able to walk because you had such knee pain, you were so off balance and now these symptoms were improved and you were able to do things that you previously couldn't do physically speaking. Correct. 
So before we get to the psychosis part of it, I want to talk a little more about the stem cell. So is it step with your specific stem cell treatment? Was it one infusion? Was it multiple infusions? What was the procedure for the stem cell therapy? I believe we did um, two. No, we did one round of exosomes first to kind of prep my body and get used to it. And exosomes are a smaller part of the stem cell and they're less, um, you have a less chance of a reaction. So we did exosomes first and then we did the stem cells, which are $30,000. And it's unfortunate that more people can't afford them. And then we did the exosomes at the end as well. So it was three different sessions. So it was an exosomes to get your body acclimated and see how you'd respond. It was the stem cells and then it was the exosomes. Correct. And how, how, what was the time period between that? Was that like exosomes and and a week later, you know, what was the time frame between each of those three steps? I want to say two weeks to a month in between. I don't really remember. Again, that's that time of where my brain is not, it was so swollen. It wasn't working. So let's talk a little bit more about the psychosis though, right? Because Allie Hilfiger talked to us when we interviewed her about, about her psychological issues as well. And she believed, and we believe that a lot of these psychological issues and in, in our, frankly, all of them, and I, I, I believe in your case and Allie's case, were likely the result of your Lyme disease, your treatment, the bacteria and brain inflammation. So do you think that this was just your body's response to the stem cells, despite the efforts of the, of the steroids? And now you had to get past this period of your healing journey to then reap the benefit of, of the true healing that was coming down the road. I can't say, um, I was diagnosed with bipolar in the hospital and I've always kind of had, I was always really creative and I would have nights where I would kind of stay up all night working on stuff. I had emotional, I don't want to say emotional issues. That sounds kind of harsh, but I guess I did have emotional issues when I would get like, if I wasn't on good terms with somebody, it would really affect me. I would have crying spells where I would cry for hours. Um, so I did have some psychological things before, and I did have the delusions and where I thought like the helicopters above our house were watching me um, and just little things like that. And then I would kind of, I would go on these like rants where I would type out in my phone just what I was thinking and they would be pages long. I think I also used to send them to my doctor and she was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, so it's hard to say if it is both bipolar and Lyme disease, or if it was just the Lyme affecting my brain and I had encephalitis. Um, I'm not sure we know. Another possible scenario is where toxins in your blood can also cause these types of delusions as well. So I think there's a lot of health-based factors that could contribute to what the, the delusions you were experiencing and the bipolar disorder you were, you were experiencing. And it sounds like this was very intermittent for you. It wasn't consistent where you were having delusions on a regular basis and you had bouts of bipolar disorder, but then you had pretty level times as well, it sounds like. Yes, I did. So to, again, that to, to us indicates that that was probably more likely driven by your illness rather than actual bipolar disorder or psychosis. But again, what came first, the chicken or the egg, it's just an interesting debate I think to have. And from our standpoint, because many people could be suffering from these types, types of illnesses, and it could be a tick-borne illness resulting in that illness, I think it's important to be aware of the possibility that they're related and mind can cause those types of, of conditions. So 
Now you're in your, you, you mentioned that you, you did have a battle psychosis. You were, you were in the hospital and you were physically feeling better. So did your, did your psychosis subside and your health continue to improve after this now that you got the stem cells? They put me on Latuda, which is um, a bipolar medication and also an antipsychotic. And um, I think that helped. I think also being in a clean, mold-free environment. I also, my mom had, I can't think of what it's called, the caretaker syndrome, where you get overly tired and exhausted. It was not the healthiest environment in my house at that point. So I think being away from those stressors, we just needed a break from each other. Like I love my parents. They did everything they could for me, but my mom needed a break. My dad needed a break. I needed a break. So just being in a different environment, I think helped as well. It's hard to know if it was the medication or just time uh, healing from the stem cells and getting sleep. And it's hard to know what healed my brain the most. So we know caretaker burnout is a real problem in the chronic Lyme community because it's hard for, it's, it's just hard on the entire family, not just the patient. So what tips would you give the people that are listening to help them with their caretakers prevent caretaker burnout like you experienced with your parents? That's a really tough question. Um, if you have the resources, I would say hire someone, hire a nurse to do some of the work. If you don't, just try to be patient with each other and patient with your caretaker, let them rest. If there's times where you feel that you're stable enough to let them rest, let them rest. It's hard. I don't really have answers. I wish I had more to so say. We, we, so Caitlin, we've, we've learned from Dr. Veronica Leslie that who really was well-versed and proficient in stem cells for Lyme disease, that the healing from stem cells to Lyme disease can take over a year because it's a very gradual and slow process of rebuilding your cells and repairing damaged cells and really from a whole body approach at a cellular level. So it sounds like that your body was gradually healing. And as you were taking steps to, to emotionally and psychologically and physically feel better, that the stem cells were working in parallel and together, that's kind of what got you to where you are today. Yes, it was. And I, after I was in the hospital for 16 days um, and then they sent me to an outpatient center and I actually was in outpatient for nine months. So I was able, and they kind of keep you on a schedule. You get up at seven, you make your bed, you eat in a way it was kind of like physical rehab for me as well. And they made you go on walks it literally was like a physical rehab to get my body working again. So a lot of people listening may be a little upset about this topic. And, you know, we're told so much that Lyme's all in our head. We have yeah. severe medical trauma, but there really is a psychological component to Lyme in pretty much every chronic Lyme disease patient. So how would you, did you ever feel the same way where you were ashamed or didn't want to face the fact that Lyme could be both physical and emotional? Absolutely. I think uh, with my doctor showing me my emails and saying like, what are you doing? I remember I kind of got that thing that she was like the feeling that maybe she was saying like, you know, something's a little off here. And I had been told the whole time it was in my head. So up until my psychological break, I never thought it was in my head. I, well, a little bit with the panic attacks, but 
I really resented that idea of being called crazy or doctors saying it was in my head. I know with the more gelins, they also handed my dad a list of psychiatrists when I had these huge lesions all up and down my spine, there was no way I was picking that myself. And so I had really resented that idea before I got my bipolar diagnosis. And with more gelins, you have literal fibers coming out of lesions on your skin. And yet they still said it was psychological. Correct. So do you think that that's another piece of it? So you said you finally accepted that when you had your, your psychosis after the stem cells, that there was a psychological component in addition to the physical component. So is that the time when you finally realized I am physically ill, but I am also having to manage and battle psychological illness as well? It took a while. It probably took almost that nine months for me to come to that conclusion, the nine months of being in the outpatient and going through the therapy and talking about it. And it took that time for the delusions to go away as well. It took months. So how, about how long ago was it when you got the stem cells? Because shortly after is when you had the psych- psychosis and you were in the, in the hospital for about, or outpatient for about nine months. So time-wise and perspective-wise, how long ago was it when you got the stem cells? I got stem cells January, 2020. My psychotic episode was February, 2020. So you're, you're recently out of the outpatient program, it sounds like. Yeah, it's been almost a year coming up in September. So do you think that accepting and working on your emotional, psychological, and physical health all at the same time and accepting that, that it was a, a whole body illness was another important factor in your healing journey? Absolutely. So I know you've made some recent changes and, and revelations with your doctors specific to Latuda for your bipolar disorder. And, and this is just within the last couple, week or two. So are you comfortable sharing with us what those, those discussions were and the changes were and how your body reacted to them? Well, we lowered my Latuda. They had also in the outpatient, they had put me on Depakote, which is a really just not a good medicine um, with the side effects. Weight gain is one of them. And I had already gained almost 80 pounds just from inflammation and from probably prednisone. And then they put me on Depakote, which also causes weight gain. My parents were furious. Um, I didn't know at the time in the time I said, I don't want any more meds. And they said, this is a plant-based medicine. That's what they called the Depakote. Um, and which is not true. <laughs> what was your question again? Sorry. <laughs> Well, and I know you had some recent changes with your, your prescription, but before we get into that, can you, can you talk about what, what is Depakote? Is that used for a, a psychological symptom? It's also used for uh, delusions and probably an antipsychotic. So I know uh, the question was, I know you've made some changes in your current medication and you've been responding pretty well to them and you've been making some observations as a result of that. So can you talk to us about your discussions with your doctors what changes you've made with your current medication and now what your, your suspicion is based on, based on that outcome? Well, we brought my Latuda down from 80 milligrams to 60. And my therapist said, you know, she was talking to another one of her patients that's bipolar. And she was saying, you know, all of my, the girl was in crisis and she, it said, she said, that my name came to her mind. And she said, why doesn't Caitlin have these issues? Why doesn't Caitlin have these kind of crises and episodes? And she said, you know, you've been really stable this whole time. 
you haven't had an ep- like you haven't had a crisis the entire time I've known you. And she's thinking, maybe I'm not bipolar and maybe it was the stem cells that caused inflammation and put me into psychosis. So I just have to, again, make that observation that you were so sick and here you are today. And I know you're not where you want to be, but right, you've made so, so much progress. So before I hand this back over to Rich, give us an idea of, of how you were at your worst and something you're doing today that you never dreamed of doing when you're at your sickest. Um, when I was at my worst, it would probably be either in the hospital with the psychosis or when I would go through Herxheimer reactions and I would be in the bathtub. I remember my histamine would come through and my skin would just be bright red and I would feel like things were swimming under my skin. I think that's probably from the more gelins. And I would just honestly beg to die because I was in that much pain. It was horrible. That was probably my lowest point. Um, now I'm horseback riding again. I'm driving again. I wasn't able to drive for almost three years because of those episodes, the kind of seizure like episodes, because I didn't want to hurt anybody else. Um, I'm horseback riding. I'm walking. I just got a gym membership for the first time in three or four years. I had my first personal training session and I made it through. (laughs) So I'm doing some pretty exciting things. I also uh, started with a class back in school to finish my uh, bachelor's degree. So, and I'm declared a double major in psychology and sociology. And I finished my first class with an A minus. So not bad for taking seven years off. So Kelly, now you're back in school and you're studying psychology again. And, and, and let's talk about the good news. The first piece of good news is um, because you've now been on this journey, you won't have to do any clinical work to become a psychologist because <laughs> you've been doing all your clinicals. And now you have to finish up your educational work so that you can become a psychologist. So talk to us about what your vision is for your future professionally. Are you planning to become a psychologist and are you planning to use all of these experiences that you've, um, that you've gained through this journey to um, help you to help other people who, have, who will be on this journey? Um, becoming a psychologist, I'm not sure, at least at this time, that I could handle a huge class load. I'm just taking one class at a time. So I'm trying not to get too ahead of myself. Um, so we're taking that one step at a time, but I would like to help other people with Lyme disease and, um, somehow psychologically, I would like, I don't know, I'd like to do something with Lyme disease and possibly being a psychologist if I get there. (laughs) So talk to us about the beautiful pieces of this. You know, one of the things that I find the most exciting about this podcast, and quite frankly, the most surprising when I first started uh, working with Matt on this, is that every one of our guests have said that they wouldn't give back this Lyme journey if they could, because they've learned so much about themselves through this journey. So talk to us about what you learned about yourself that you would not have learned had you not gone through the suffering of this chronic Lyme disease journey. Um, just how resilient I am. I think that kind of runs in my family. My dad is actually a Jewish refugee who came through Ellis Island. Um, his parents hit out. My grandfather was a, um, resistance fighter during the Holocaust. So a Jewish resistance fighter, I think resilience is in my blood. And, um, I'd like to think that I'm kind of carrying on the legacy for my grandfather for fight, kind of fighting for, human rights with this. 
So, Kaylin, you, you've also uh, developed a really beautiful Instagram and uh, you have a very large following and, and obviously you're going to now start reaching out to the community. So talk to us about how you're going to use your social media platform as a vehicle for reaching out to folks who are on the Lyme disease journey. Well, I'm definitely going to post. I got those beautiful graphics that Matt sent me for our podcast. So that's a good place to start. I've also been doing the Lyme support groups and meeting new people through that. And I would really like to help. I'm not sure yet exactly how I'm going to do that, but I would like to kind of make my own path and find my own way to help just like you guys are doing. So I understand that you started to go to the Generation Lime support groups and uh, our, our followers know we're big fans of Generation Lime. So talk to us about what it's been like to connect with those folks in that community and how it's been helpful. It's been wonderful. Um, with Lime, I lost almost all of my friends. Nobody understands it. I think Chris Newby brought up the casserole thing. If you have cancer, that people bring you a casserole. If you have Lyme, people kind of run the other way. They don't know what to say. Um, so it honestly feels like I have a group of friends for an hour <laughs> at night. And it's nice to hear other people's stories and just connect with other people. So now let's talk about the last thing we always talk about on Tick Bootcamp, on Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The very last question we ask you, and the first way we're going to ask you to help uh, in your new life as a Lyme advocate is to talk to us about what you do if your mom came walking into your room right after this podcast and she had a tick biting on her arm. What would you recommend she do so that she would not have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? I would recommend she remove it and we take it to the doctor and get it tested. And honestly, probably to do a round of oral doxycycline, no matter what the results are, because the test results aren't accurate anyway. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Caitlin Olenek. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Caitlin Olenek, please visit her Instagram page at Golden Kate. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, the members of our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.